Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Excellent. Fantastic. Okay, so um, if you haven't been around for the last few weeks, we are looking at the Bible course as a church. And this week, we have arrived at the Exodus. So we're still quite near the beginning. Not the book of Exodus as a whole, but just the Exodus, the part in the story where God pulls his people and oppressed people out of Egypt and into freedom. Okay. Now, um, there's quite a lot of content here, um, so um, there's 15 chapters altogether, so we're not going to go through the whole 15 chapters in detail, you'll be pleased to know, because we could be here a while. So what we're going to try and do, we're going to try and condense a few key bits that might help you unlock a feeling of, what, it, of what, the, what the book's about, what this narrative's about, so that you can unlock it for yourself. And, and then when you go into your life groups and you look into it into more detail, hopefully it will give you a bit more context. So, um, so we're going to be looking at um, two things I want you to keep in mind as we look at this. Number one, what is the big picture? But within that, why is it relevant to us today? And that's really important because you've got to imagine this is three and a half thousand years ago. Okay, It's a very different context, different part of the world, different people. How is that context going to relate to our context today? And what we have to bear in mind is God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so his heart, albeit three and a half thousand years ago, is the same heart then as he has for us now. So if we can understand his heart then, we can learn something about what God desires for us now and apply it and live it out well. So... God's heart. Well, let's set the scene first of all. So, we have this people, the Israelites. They have been in Egypt for 400 years, ever since Joseph made his way there due to a famine and his brothers kind of kicking him out, trying to kill him and all this sort of thing. And you may have heard a little bit about that last week. And the Israelites are are now beginning to be oppressed um, because although they were comfortable and uh, they were growing as a nation... Uh, they were growing a little bit too fast for Pharaoh's liking. Uh, and it says in, uh, in verse 7 of the first chapter, it says, The Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous, so that the land was filled with them. And this goes back to Abraham's covenant. He's going to be the father of a nation where the, the children are as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. God is sticking to his covenant promise. But Pharaoh sees this and he sees a threat. What happens if this giant nation side with all our enemies? What are we going to do then? We'll be in trouble. And this, when I say a nation, I mean they reckon there was about two and a half million people in the Israelites. Like that's the size of Albania. Right? So if you imagine when Moses goes in to bring that people out, imagine moving in, uh, in rapid succession the size of Albania from one place to another. Right? I mean, this is it's a logistical nightmare. Just organizing the chairs is in, in for three, it's crazy, right? So two and a half million people and Pharaoh's not happy. So he comes up with this genius plan. We'll just cull all the firstborn. We'll get rid of them. We'll stop them growing. And along comes this baby boy called Moses. And Moses is clearly a special child because his mother places him in a basket in the bulrushes, sends him down the river, and this child is divinely picked up by Egyptian royalty, taken in and adopted into the royal family, grows up as an Egyptian prince, 
educated as an Egyptian prince and is divinely protected for a greater purpose. So the scene is set, and, uh, but it's, uh, Moses has a bit of an issue. You see, Moses is still an Israelite at heart. And he comes to this point where he sees his people being oppressed, and he sees a Hebrew slave being punished uh, and beaten by an Egyptian. And so he decides to take things into his own hands, and he kills this Egyptian, thinking he's trying to do something good for his people. But he's caught, he has to flee, and into the desert for 40 years he goes. And then we come to the Bible reading we've just read. The burning bush. God shows up. Now go, I am sending you. Well, hang on a minute. Me? I'm the guy that killed that Hebrew, that um, Egyptian slave driver 40 years ago. You can't be sending me. I can't go back into that place. They drove me out. Surely it's not me. The excuses begin. Who am I, Moses says. Who am I? I mean, this is a joke, really, because Moses, from the very beginning, thinks it's all about him. Who am I? An interesting phrase. And as we'll see, God's very aware of that. What if they need your name, he says. Well, that's okay. I'll give you my name. There's that problem sorted. Well, hang on, God. I I, I can't talk very well. I've got a stammer. Well, hang on a second. Um, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gave him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak. I will teach you what to say. By this point, Moses is clearly running out of ideas because he just goes, Oh, just send someone else, God. I've run out of excuses. Just send someone else. And God, and it says, he burned with anger towards Moses. God's clearly not taking no for an answer. And he says, fine. If you have to take someone with you just to make sure you go take Aaron with you. Your brother, I know he speaks well, so now you've got no excuses. Take Aaron with you. You see, when Moses was looking at the situation... It was as if it was all about Moses. Who am I to go and do that? I can't talk very well. What if I don't have your name? Just take someone else that isn't me. It's all about Moses in his perspective. But I have a question. Have you ever wondered why the bush, the burning bush, doesn't burn up? Hands up if you've ever heard of the, the fire triangle. Have you ever heard of that? Anyone? Oh, good. Science teacher down the front. Excellent. Wonderful. So, the fire triangle. It's a little triangle, uh, and it's, they kind of teach it to kids in school. I still remember it from when I was at school. And it's a thing where um, you have three sources or, or three things you need to keep a fire going. Can anyone tell me, excluding the science teacher, what they might be? Anyone? Oxygen is one. Fuel is another. Heat is the third one. If you are lacking any one of those three things, the fire goes out. Okay? You do not have a fire. Now, the thing is, when Moses sees this bush in the distance, what does he see? Oh, that bush isn't burning up. I'll just go have a little look. Now, why isn't it burning up? Because that bush is not fuel for that fire. That fire is not dependent on that bush to keep burning. Just in God's presence being in that space, he's saying, I am not dependent on anything. 
I am the great I am. I am self-sustaining. So when I say, Moses, go, now go, he's not saying, Moses, I need you to go. I can't do this without you. No, he's saying, Moses, I want to partner with you, so get off your backside and go. Not because I need you, but because I want to partner with you. I want to show the people what it is to do relationship one-to-one. So he has a job to change Moses' perspective. So we move. God finally gets Moses to agree to go, albeit with Aaron. And so we move into this next stage of the story, this great rescue mission that God has in store for the Israelites. Now, if you've read the story before, you'll know that um, God promises to send these plagues upon Egypt. Moses goes, let my people go, Pharaoh. If you don't, God's going to send these plagues to you. And each plague, as you'll learn if you do the Bible course uh, in your life groups, each plague it represents kind of, um, a, a kind of a diminishing of one of the Egyptian gods. So, for example, the, the river Nile was seen as the blood of one of the Egyptian gods. So when the river turns to blood at God's command, it's like saying, right, that God has no power. That God is nothing before me. If you think about the sun, they're kind of the biggest god in Egypt was Ra, the sun god. So when God says, right, we're going to cover that over, it's like saying, Ra has no power before me. Ra is nothing. Who is Ra? I am the great I am. So every plague was this kind of way of showing the Egyptians Look, I'm the real deal here. Let my people go. But what I found really interesting in rereading this passage, and something I hadn't noticed before, hands up if you've seen The Prince of Egypt, the film. Has anyone seen that? It's a great film. I love the music, right? But some bits aren't quite factually in line, right? And uh, there was one thing. I was like, oh, no, I've just read over it before. Um, And it's the bit where, in the film... You see Moses kind of wading into the water, and he gets his staff, and in goes the staff into the water, right? Now, when I read it, I was like, Moses never did that. It was Aaron. Aaron put his staff and, and made the water turn to blood, right? I was thinking, what is this about? And then when you look at all the plagues, it's really interesting, because Aaron does the first three he does the first three, and then Moses does some of the plagues in the second in terms of God saying, right, go and do this. And I was looking at it thinking, what is this about? Now, there's a point where God says to Moses, when you take Aaron, he is going to be your prophet. He's going to speak on your behalf. And you are going to be like God to him as he will be your prophet. So he's saying, literally, you're, getting, you're going to enact the relationship with Aaron as I wish to do it with you. And you're going to see how this works. Okay. And so what happens? Right, we're going to turn the river to blood. And he says, right, Moses, go and tell Aaron to turn that river into blood. Right? And I'm thinking, well, Moses could just say, well, Aaron's right there. You could tell him yourself, you know? But he says, no, Moses, go and tell Aaron to go and turn that river to blood. So Moses goes over and he says, Aaron, go and turn that river into blood. And Aaron goes, who am I to do that? Oh, I can't. No, he doesn't do any of that. He goes, okay. He goes, and it turns to blood. The next plague, Moses, go and tell Aaron, okay, 
Aaron, go and do this. Okay. And it happens. And what you see is this incredible lesson being taught to Moses. Actually, all I wanted was obedience. Obedience just to follow my lead because it's never been about you, Moses. It's always been about me. And all it is is just the joy of me being able to partner with you in this. And so you see the first three plagues, Aaron does exactly what he's asked to do. And it's not even God asking him to do it. It's Moses asking Aaron to do it. And he's still right. I'm going to be obedient. Let's get this done. And then you see in the second half, the plagues six, seven, eight, and 9, if you want to have a little look, we see God say, Moses, now go and do this. And it's like Moses goes, oh, I get it. It's never about me to begin with. Now I get what this God and prophet relationship looks like. I can step into the thing you've been calling me to. I can enact it. And straight away we see a glimpse of God's heart for what he's been desiring. Obedience. Just to do as he wills and to trust that it's his power and not our own. How would it look if we could adopt that mentality? in our own ministry settings. And by ministry, I don't mean church. I mean work. I mean home. I mean when you go shopping. If you come into contact with people in the everyday, then you are in a ministry field as a Christian. How would it look if we could adopt, who am I to go and talk to that shop cashier about Jesus or whatever it might be? I don't know what the context might be. But at what point will we take the who am I out of the equation, because it's never been about us. It's always been about God. The pressure is off. We don't have to rely on our own strength. It's his strength that does all the work, his spirit that does all the work. What would it look like? And then we come to the very last plague, and um, again, it's the kind of the climax of the story as we read about the Passover. Pharaoh is unrelenting in his hard heart, and and he's not going to let the Israelites go, and God says, right, this is it. Moses, all the firstborn of the Egyptians are going to die, and they will let you go. And so he, he says, this is what you're to do. You're to take an unblemished lamb. You're to kill it, eat it, and you're going to take the blood, and you're going to paint the blood over your doorposts and frame." And when the angel of death comes, it will pass over every household where I see the blood of the lamb. If that's not a foreshadowing of Christ, I don't know what is. And actually, it's wonderful because not long after this, they're going to go and collect the law or receive the law. And it's going to be this kind of culture of sacrifice. And you'll learn more about that next week. But already, God is setting a culture of what it's going to look like to escape death of what it's going to look like to step into life. And actually, when Christ comes, that's the point where we can look back at the story and go, wow, God already planned what it was going to look like. He was setting the tone for what it was going to take for us to step out of slavery and death into freedom with that sacrifice. And it's like the Jewish people at the time, the Jewish believers who saw that could look at that great story that they they would sing songs about and rejoice in and go, Wow, I get it. It's an incredible foreshadowing. 1,500 years before Jesus even came to be. 
So we're coming to this point. Pharaoh has said, okay, you can go. You are released. Get out of my country. I'm sick of this. Just relent. Pray so that I don't receive any more um, plagues upon my nation. And so we have this exodus, this great exit from the land of Egypt. And, uh, and when they were eating the Passover, God was very specific with some of his instructions. Um, in Exodus 12, it says, um, if, you, if you want to turn there, Exodus 12, verse 11, it says, this is how you are to eat. Eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Eat in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And in verse 39, he says, with the dough they had bought from Egypt, Sorry, they brought from Egypt. They baked cakes of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare the food for themselves. Literally ready to go. Probably eating stood up, ready to dash out the door at a moment's notice. And then God commands Moses to part the Red Sea. And again, we have this almost foreshadowing of the imagery. You think what baptism looks like when we, we die with Christ in the water and we come back alive with him. Actually, they're stepping out of slavery. They're going into this kind of ginormous baptismal font <laughs> and then coming out the side into freedom. And the thing that's chasing behind them, this death, this shadow of death, is washed away. And they're truly free. And the response, the response is glorious. This song of Moses, we are free. This first song we see in, uh, in, in the scriptures. And it's kind of encapsulated in verse 13 of chapter 15. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. This song of Moses. And we can see that this kind of mental shift has taken place. Because Moses, at the beginning, who am I? And now Moses has just parted the Red Sea. He's just done something of incredible magnitude. And he goes, wow, God, you saved us in your strength. Oh, thank you, Lord. Let's give you some praise. An incredible shift of mentality from beginning to end. And they're about to go off to get the law. But the beautiful thing about this story is, at no point does God say, you know, you're going to have to fulfill this law first before I'm going to save you. I love that. Is that what I sound like every week? (laughs) (laughs) And he says, at no point are you going to have to fulfill the law before I'm going to pull you out of Egypt. Actually, he goes, you know what? I heard a cry from the people that I love. Do you know what? I'm going to make sure you get out safe and sound. We can deal with the rest later. But I just want you as you are. I want you out of bondage in a place where you can choose to be with me once again. And then we can sort the, the details out as we go. If that's not God's heart for his people, then what is? His heart hasn't changed in three and a half thousand years. He wants us as we are. And he'll deal with the rest later. It's, he will deal with it. It's important that we acknowledge that. But we have to come as we are first and foremost. We need to start that journey with him. So we can see this kind of big picture enslavement, but God has a rescue plan which leads to liberation. And we see it in this story of the Israelites, but actually we see it now. People are enslaved, 
with, with different things, aren't they, in, today, in today's world? And whether it's addictions or fear or whatever it might be, people are still enslaved. And actually, God has provided a rescue plan. The rescue plan is Jesus. What's really interesting, um, I was at a National Youth Workers Conference last weekend, and one of the speakers mentioned something about this passage that really struck me, that I hadn't really picked up before, um, and I found it quite profound. Um, I moved house yesterday, okay? Way! So I, I officially live on this road. Way! Um, so, um, but what was interesting, when you're kind of sifting through all your rubbish, or, or stuff, not necessarily rubbish, but I'm sifting through all your things, it's quite interesting to realize how much junk you've accrued in all that time. And it's a fantastic time to be able to cull half of this stuff so you don't take it with you. Um, but also as well, sometimes when you're on the move, I remember when I went traveling, and I went traveling for a year, and I had just a rucksack and for my entire year's worth of moving. So at that point, you have to cull things and kind of really think, right, what am I going to take that is essential, a necessity, right? And the Israelites, the Israelites, they had to move quick. They didn't have, have, have time to make their own food properly, right? They were tucking all this stuff in. They were rapid, right? Ready to get out the door of move on. And, uh, and yet, interestingly, they thought this was essential, right? I mean, that doesn't make... I mean, chapter 15, verse 20. So then Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand. And all the women followed her with tambourines dancing. And Miriam sang, sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Oh, I've got some moves. I know. <laughs> for the audio recording, you missed something spectacular there. Just, <laughs> thank you. But what, what is the mindset that made that a thing? Because the minute they're ready to go, they're waiting for the angel of death to come. They're still enslaved. They're still in captivity. They haven't been saved yet. And yet this was a priority because they were already thinking about God's going to save us. He's already got it in hand. I'm not out of the, the darkness yet, but he's got it covered. And actually the priority is giving him praise. Just like Jamie prayed before, before the end of worship about actually this opportunity to give praise to God. The Israelites had the priority in the right order. It's never been about us. It's always been about God. And actually, how do we apply that to our context? Because there are still things that enslave people today. And maybe that, that could be someone in this room. Statistics will tell you it's probably true. And so there's an opportunity to respond. There's an opportunity to pray. And if there's something where actually you think, you know what, that is a point of enslavement in my life. Actually, I'll tell you, take your tambourine, prepare, because if you're willing and you buy into God's rescue plan of Jesus, actually, you will be saved. I don't doubt that for a second. So just as we close, if, if that's kind of you and you feel God really tugging on your heart with that, then I encourage you to respond and not miss the opportunity. He didn't wait for the Israelites to abide by the law first. He was willing to save them as they were. His heart's the same then as it is now. So don't miss the opportunity.